Father, we do pray that you would use our lives in any way that you choose. Uh, we give ourselves to you freshly tonight and uh, want to be reminded about your love for us and how we can respond in praise to you for the deliverance that you give to us over and over again. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm number 21 is the psalm that we're going to look at tonight. Psalm number 21. And I think this psalm is placed where it is in the collection of psalms because of uh, what we saw in Psalm 20. Psalm 20 uh, was a royal psalm. It's about King David. Remember, he was praying outside the tabernacle. And he's praying that, that God would give him deliverance in, victory, uh, deliverance in battle. And the people are praying along with him and are encouraging him to trust in God through this. And David responds with confidence in God in Psalm 20 by saying, you know, some trust in chariots, some trust in the best methods of military advancement, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And, and um, so they're, they're heading out into the battle depending upon God for deliverance. Here in Psalm 21, it's, it, it's on the other side of the battle. The battle has been won. And now the natural response by God's King and God's people is one of thanksgiving. And uh, specifically, this is a thanksgiving psalm or a, thank, a, a royal psalm. A royal psalm is simply a psalm that is about a king or for a king that could be uh, sung uh, following the conclusion of a battle. And so this originally was written for David, uh, probably by David, and then used later on for other kings. And now we can use it ourselves as well, just for even though we're not kings uh, in, in the same sense, um, or in any sense maybe. Um, but, but it's written down and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit so that we could join in praising God for His deliverance. Not only His deliverance of David here, but also praise God when He delivers us as well. And so that will be the focus of our study tonight, Psalm number 21. Let me read it for us. This is the Word of God. O Lord, in Your strength, the king will be glad, and in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him, for you make him most blessed forever, and you make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. God delivers. And when He delivers, it, it demands our praise and it also helps to galvanize our confidence in Him. 
God's deliverance demands our praise and it galvanizes our confidence in Him for, for further dependence. When we see God deliver in the past, when we see Him deliver in the near, uh, in the near um, past, then it results in galvanizing our confidence in Him in the future. And so this royal psalm is about David, but written not by David, but by the people. That is, the initial conversation is coming from the mouths of the people. David writes it down eventually, but, but the people here are giving praise to God for delivering their king. Remember, I, I mentioned Psalm 20. was David was preparing for battle, trusting in God to provide victory. Psalm 21, David's returning from battle, praising God for victory, and then asking for success in continued battle. Let me show you why I think that these two psalms are tied. Notice the main request in in Psalm 20, the last verse. Save, O Lord, or deliver. May the King answer us in the day we call. Save, O Lord. That's the main request. Now look at the uh, response of God in in 21.1. O Lord, in Your strength the King will be glad, and in Your salvation how greatly He will rejoice. Notice also in in, uh, Psalm 20, verse 4, remember the prayer? May He, God, grant you, David, your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsels. So, may He grant your desires. And then notice the response in 21.2. God, you have given Him, David, His heart's desire. So, so I think for those reasons, we have those, those words that are connected that, that, that we should understand that these psalms go together. And one is on the front end of battle, one is on the back end. So, I said that God's deliverance demands our praise and then it galvanizes our confidence in Him uh, for a future conflict. And, and that's the two points that we'll see tonight. So first, God's deliverance demands our praise. God's deliverance demands our praise. Verses 1-7. to seven. God's deliverance demands our praise. Here the people are praising God for His strength and salvation, specifically in delivering their king. And there are many reasons to praise God. The first is that God has delivered the king. The people had been praying in Psalm 20 that that God would deliver their king. And David was praying in Psalm 20. And now David comes back from battle and he's experienced deliverance and victory. And David's right response and the people's right response is one of praise. Look at verse 1. O Lord, in Your strength the king will be glad, and in Your salvation... He will rejoice. David is thankful that God strengthens him in battle. And he's thankful that God rescues him in battle. Salvation here in verse 1 is not talking about salvation from sin. We, we uh, use that word very frequently in our church and in, in uh, any, any type of preaching you hear that word salvation, you immediately think salvation from sin. But here, it's not referring to salvation from sin, but rather rather a rescue, that is, a, a rescue from battle, um, being saved from battle, from, from death in battle, from defeat. And this is what precisely what the people were praying for in Psalm 20, verse 9. Save, O Lord. All right? They weren't talking about, you know, bring somebody to saving faith in God. That's not what they're talking about. They're saying, save us from death and defeat. And that's what they're praying for. Now, in verse 1, the people, uh, David praises them and the people join in praising Him as well. 
So why is the able, why is the king able to rejoice? Why are the people able to rejoice? God's deliverance, I said, demands our praise. Well, uh, specifically, it's because God has given abundant a blessing to the king. Verses two through six. So the king praises God for his salvation, specifically because of what? What's taken place? Well, there are several things. Uh, first, he's granted David's desires. You have given him his heart's desires. You have not withheld the request of his lips. David received what his heart desired. And we talked a lot about this last week, that that our desires need to be in line with God's desires, that we need to work hard to understand what God wills, what God desires, and then and then try to seek that. You know, I, I used the illustration of the soccer field. You know, we get on the field. We know that God wants us to score a goal, so to speak. And, and now, as our desires are in line with God's desires, then we start moving towards action. And David's desire was to win in battle, and he's praying that God would respond, and he does. God grants the desire of his heart. How did God answer? Well, He gave him rich blessings in battle in verse 3. For you meet him with blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. So God came to intervene. That's the idea of meeting him. You you meet him. It's as if God comes to David and meets with him, intervenes for David, and the result was victory and honor. Notice at the end of verse 3, a crown of fine gold on his head. This is a symbol of honor showing that David is in a position where he is to be blessed as king, as a king crowned with honor. He also... Another abundant blessing that that David receives is long life. In verse 4, he asked life of you. So again, this is the people talking. He, David, asked life of you, God, and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. What kind of life did David ask for? Well, prior to the battle, he was asking that his life be spared, that he doesn't die in his battle, that he wins. And God went above and beyond that, didn't He? It wasn't that He just spared him from battle, but notice the end of verse 4, He gave you length of days forever and ever. That is, not that David gets uh, to go on living forever, but that he has not only victory in battle, freedom from death in battle, but also a kingly dynasty. So God's gracious in that way. Verse 5, we see His victory in battle. His glory is great through your salvation. Again, the salvation is talking about rescue here. And then splendor and majesty at the end of verse 5. This further shows what honor that David receives as a result of winning in battle. It's not that David on his own is glorious or honorable. It's that he reflects in some way God's glory, God's honor. And then verse 6, another abundant blessing that David receives is joy. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. So, why is David joyful? What what brings David joy? Look at the end of verse 6. What is it? It's joy because of God's presence. It's that God is near. And, and the result is that David finds joy in that. There's no greater joy for a person who relies on God than to be confident that He is near. That, that we know that... that that true blessings don't come from temporal outcomes, right? I, I need to get the, this promotion. I need to get over this health crisis. I need to get past this situation, uh, this conflict that's going on with the government or, or whatever else. 
It's not about that ultimately, those temporal victories. It's ultimately about where true blessings come from, which is in knowing God and, and having His presence known to us. And that's what David finds his joy in. So the king receives abundant blessing. And then in verse 7, the king finds refuge in God. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. So why, why is it that David is successful? Why, why is it that kings who follow in David's footsteps are successful? What, what contributes to his success? And the answer in verse 7 is that he is not shaken at the end of verse 7 because he, the beginning of verse 7, he trusts in the Lord. He depends on God. We saw that in, in Psalm 20 before he went to battle. He said, you know, everybody else, they put all their confidence in horses and chariots, all their military might, but not me. My confidence is in the Lord my God, in the name of the Lord my God, what He represents. So, so he was depending on God prior to battle. God delivered. And then as a result, David doesn't say, okay, that was enough putting my refuge in God. I can take it from here. It is, I depended on God. He delivered me in battle. And now I continue to depend on God. See, it, and this is going to lead to our next point, which is that um, God's deliverance actually galvanizes our confidence in Him for future victory. But, but this is what's going on. He finds refuge in Him, sees God be a good refuge, and then continues to trust in Him. And you know, that's the kind of people that God loves to come to the aid of. God loves to the, come to the aid of people who rely on Him. And we'll talk about this a little bit more on uh, at the end, actually. I was trying to remember. I was working on another sermon today so uh, for Sunday, so I was trying to remember if it was part of this application or the one for Sunday. So I think it is this one. We'll talk about that more. That you know, Sometimes we don't see God bless and God give us what we're asking for because of our lack of faith. And um, I'll, I'll try to, to drive that home at the end. But the reason for David's stability, the reason for our stability, is, is that we depend on God. And not only is David delivered from trouble in battle through his dependence on God, but he's also, at the end of the verse, it says he's unshakable. He is secure. He's in a great spot because he puts his confidence in God. He is like a tree planted by the rivers of water which yieldeth fruit in its season. And its leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 1.3 Why is it that he prospers? Why is he a strong tree planted by the, the rivers of water? It's because he trusts in God. He trusts in, in Psalm 1, specifically, it's, he trusts in his word. Right? He, he, he goes after wisdom. He, he recognizes that God's wisdom, as explained in his word, is a good thing and it's a sure uh, source of life. It's that stream effectively. And so God's deliverance demands and results in our praise. That's verses 1 through 7. But it also boosts our confidence in him for future victory. So number 2, God's deliverance galvanizes or boosts our confidence in him for future victory. God's deliverance galvanizes our confidence in him for future victory verses 8 to 13. So, now the battle's over. Now time to move on. What's next? And, and what the people recognize immediately is not that God's done, we're done with God, 
But, but now we need to use this as a means by which we continue to trust in God. Because there are more battles coming. There will be other times when, when, we, are, uh, when we are vulnerable. And what they recognize is that because God has been faithful in the past, He will be faithful in the future. And, and specifically, that God will deliver them from their enemies. People have watched God deliver their king in battle and they're confident that God will do it again. You see, God's initial deliverance encourages us to trust in Him for future deliverance. And I think maybe a, a, a helpful analogy would be even in our own salvation. You know, Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. So He began it. We trusted in Him initially that He would give us salvation. And we did trust Him. But we don't stop trusting Him as soon as we get saved, right? We, we continue to trust in Him. It actually encourages us to trust Him more. Because He began it, we are confident that He will continue it all the way till the end. And this is what the people recognize. Not in terms of salvation from sin, but in terms of deliverance from battle. And notice the means of deliverance that they expect to see. Verse 8, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. They expect that... Notice, this is talking about David, by the way. It's a little bit unclear there when you read it. It sounds like it's talking about God. God, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your hand will find out those who hate you. But if you notice the, the pronouns there, it's hard to tell because the first pronoun is capitalized, which every first word of the sentence is going to be capitalized or first line of a, a, a line of poetry is going to be capitalized. So um, the your there could be referring to God, could be referring to David. But notice the next pronoun there in the first part of verse 8. Your hand will find out all your, lowercase y. So I think the New American Standard translators got it right here. They're talking about David. The people are speaking to God about David. They're saying, David, your hand... They're speaking to David about his victory. They're saying, your hand will find out all your enemies and your right hand will find out those who hate you. David, you're going to have success. And, and this idea of finding out is, is the idea of, of um, a farmer reaching into his hen's nest to, to find some eggs in the morning. That's the idea. That, that David's going to reach in and find his enemies and find them exactly where they are and know how to defeat them. And what we learn here is that, yes, God is the one who's providing the refuge, verse 7. right? It's in God that David has refuge. It's in God that the people have refuge. But, it's, but, but God's refuge often comes by way of our own work. And so what we see working together is God's sovereign power, providential, strong power, and our responsibility, our efforts work along with what God is doing. That's what's going on here. David is the one working to destroy his enemies, but it's God who ultimately provides the victory. And the reason we know that is because of verse 13. Notice what it does not say. Be exalted, O Lord, and O David, in your strength. Okay, so, so when you give the victory, God, do you know who gets all the praise? Both of us do, because we're both doing it. No, it all goes to God. And so, yes, we are working in concert with what God's doing, but ultimately God gets 
the glory. It reminds me of the story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz, well, Naomi even, prays that, that God would, would, bless, uh, would bless Ruth, and that, that, that God would give Ruth long life and that she would have protection. And it turns out that Naomi becomes somewhat of an answer to her own prayer. Because she's the one who comes up with the idea to say, hey, there's a guy over there. He happens to have a field. He happens to be doing a harvest. Why don't you go there and see if you can glean from him? Who knows? Perhaps God, God is in it, right? And then Boaz does something very similar. The first time he meets Ruth, he says, I pray that God would, would uh, provide covering for you, right? I, I pray that God would, would bless you by providing covering like a hen for her, for her chicks. And then it turns out that, that Ruth later on comes to him and says, why don't you be that covering? In other words, Boaz, do you remember that prayer you prayed for me? That, that God would provide covering for me? Well, you actually are becoming the answer to your own, your own prayer if you become my kinsman redeemer. And I think that's often the way that God works. Now, now God doesn't always work that way. We can't, we can't confine Him to a box and say, well, He always have to work, has to work through me and my prayers. I always have to be the answer to my own prayers. Because there are 10,000 times and more when God answers our prayers apart from us, doesn't He? where we have no ability to contribute at all. But I would say that many times God often uses us as the answer to our own prayers. And the illustration I think that I used last week and I've used other times is, is the one of whether or not your coworker is going to come to Christ or your neighbor or your family member. You know, Do, do you know if God's going to do that or not? No, we don't know. Okay? But but what is what what do we expect when we pray that God would you please save this person? Would you please get this person the gospel? Well, could it be that, that God is expecting us to be the conduit that He is going to use to bring about salvation to that person? That is, that we are going to be the one to proclaim the gospel to that person? We could actually serve as the answer to our own prayer. And yet and and I think in that way we are uh, working in concert with what God's doing. That is, God's ultimately working out in the hearts of us and in that person to accomplish what He wants to happen, and yet we still are using effort to go out and do it. We're not just sitting back and saying, God, if you're in it, you have to do it on your own. Right? You're going to have to be the one to, to see it happen. That's not how any of the Scripture writers think. They don't think, let's sit back and see what God will do. Now, there is something to be said for waiting on God, um, but, but I think many times we shoot ourselves in the foot by, by sitting down on our hands, okay, to, to mix metaphors. Um, we, we, we do nothing. And so we, uh, I think God, those two things work together, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. In fact, uh, someone asked Charles Spurgeon one time, you know, how does he reconcile those two deep doctrines that God is sovereign over all things and yet somehow we are responsible. And do you know how Spurgeon responded? He said, why would I ever reconcile friends? In other words, these work together. Now in the end, what we do know is that God gets the glory. And that's why I pointed you to verse 13 and we'll come back to that. 
uh, later. So the means of deliverance is through David winning, through David's efforts. The description of the destruction is found in verse 9. You will make them as fiery oven in the time of your anger. So David, you're going to make your enemies. And then the Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will devour them. And again, God and David are working in concert together. David's devouring them with fire. God's devouring them with fire. Um, David will destroy them, but it's ultimately God who destroys them. Then verse seven, uh, verse that's not a number. Uh, verse ten, the people anticipate final victory. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. So as these people are considering what's going to happen to David's enemies, God's enemies. Um, they, they recognize that there's going to be final victory. This is not going to be the way that it is forever. And this could be an expectation that they have of end times destruction, that, that David's enemies will be completely wiped off of the face of the earth because in the end, we know that there will be no more sorrow and no more sighing. There, there will, all the dogs will be outside of the city, so to speak, okay, as far as the city of God there's all the dogs and the sorcerers and the liars. They're going to be outside, is what Revelation says. So that could be what they're looking forward to. It's not exactly clear. Verse 11, we see David's enemies are guaranteed failure. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. Okay, so now here, notice the, the U in verse 11 changes to a capital U, just like in verse 10. And, and at the end of verse 9, it was also talking about God. So... So likely this is talking now to God. They intended evil against you when they intended evil against David. And as if it's in huge, bold letters, the last four words, they will not succeed. They have a plan, but you know a man can plan his ways, but, but victory belongs to the Lord. God's going to accomplish what He wants, no matter what. So they will not succeed. And the reason for their guaranteed failure... It's on in verse 12. For you, God, will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Pretty um, pretty stark picture there of God taking His bow, aiming it at point-blank range at His enemies. And the point is, is that God is the reason for David's, the defeat of David's enemies. Consistent with Exodus 14.14, 14, right? The Lord will fight you for you, you simply need to hold your peace or you need to simply stand still. That's what um, God promised to the people of Israel before they made it to the Red Sea and and were being uh, trailed by the Egyptians. Don't worry about it, Israel. The Lord's going to fight for you. You simply need to stand still. The response to future deliverance is praise. So, in the first part, we'll see that in verse 13. In the first part of the psalm, it is, God's deliverance demands our praise. It's just natural that we would see God deliver and then respond with praise, but it also galvanizes us for future victory or or confidence in God for future victory that God's going to bring about the victory. And the result of that will be back to where we started, praise, right? God delivers, we praise, we trust God some more, God delivers again, and we praise. Verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in Your strength. We will sing and praise Your power. So now they turn from talking to David for most most of the psalm towards the end here. Now they're turning to God and saying, God, we praise You. 
and um, God has responded to them. He has delivered them. He will deliver them. And the result is that the people and David praise God. Be exalted, O God. All the glory goes to God, as I mentioned earlier. This is the only right response that we should have when God delivers. So, so when we see God respond to our prayers, you know, some prayer that we've been praying for months and years and God responds, you know, the, the thought should not be, well, look at how much I prayed. Look at how much I uh, solicited other people to pray with me. That, that shouldn't be the thought. It should be, be exalted, O Lord. You answered our call. You responded. You did what we couldn't do. And that's ultimately what happens whenever there's deliverance, uh, whenever there's answer to prayer. It's always God. Even if we are part of the the way in which God answers the prayer. Okay, So, so for, for Boaz, let's go back to Boaz. God, would you provide for Ruth the protection that she needs? Be the refuge that she needs? And then God says, Boaz, you're going to be that man. And Boaz takes that step and he takes that responsibility and he steps up and is that refuge for Ruth. At the end of it all, he shouldn't say, well, look at how much I did. I mean, I could have just passed them off to the kinsman, the first, the closest kinsman redeemer, let him handle it. I could have deceived him into taking Ruth and all the, the, the resources and the responsibility, the liability. I could have passed it off to someone else saying I was too busy or I was too old or all these other excuses, but I didn't do that and so praise be to me. That should not be His response. That should not be our response even when God uses us as part of the answer to the prayer or the means by which the prayer is answered. Rather, it should be what Israel does and what David does, which is, be exalted, O Lord, in Your strength. May glory and praise be to You forever and ever. So, let me give you um, two principles here from this text that I think would would be helpful for us to think through tonight. Number one, God responds to those who trust in Him. God responds to those who trust in Him. I said earlier, God loves to answer those who rely upon Him. That's the same idea. It it reminds me of this, this principle that God responds to those who have faith in Him, who trust in Him, who believe in Him. It reminds me of one of the many times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus responded directly to the faith of individuals and in other cases He turned away because of their lack of faith. So let me just give you a few examples. Blind Bartimaeus was healed by a miracle from Jesus in Mark 10. But the reason that Jesus gives in verse 52 is that Bartimaeus' faith is what triggered his healing. He said, Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. In other words, God responds to people who trust Him. Same thing He said to the hemorrhaging woman who just touched the edge of His garment and was healed. And He said, who touched me? And and finally she confessed and said, it was me. And Jesus said, go from here. Your faith has made you well. What that tells us is that God responds to those who trust Him. And, and this is one of the, the themes that we see all throughout the Scripture, isn't it? As you read through the Bible for yourself, do you not see this in the Old Testament? 
and, and throughout the New Testament as well, that as people put their confidence in God, that yes, God, You are worthy to be trusted, that that's when He responds. Or how about um, the opposite as well? In Mark's Gospel as well, when Jesus was teaching in Nazareth in His hometown, how did His hometown respond to His preaching? They didn't want to hear it. There's no... Um, uh, how's, how's it go? No prophet is... How's it go? Yeah. The prophet is not received in his own hometown. Something like that. And and uh, the, the end of that text, the end of that section in Mark 6 reads this way. He could do no more miracles there and he wondered at their unbelief. He could do no more miracles there and he wondered at their unbelief. I think those two things are connected. He could do no more miracles because of their unbelief. Now, it's not that Christ is... His hands are tied, you know. He's unable to do things. But it but it seems to me that, that faith is the conduit that God demands in many cases in order for His power to be displayed. So when God doesn't display His power, it's not that God's limited or unable, right? Let's just think of an example like when Peter walked on the water. Did Christ have the power to allow the other disciples to come out and walk on the water if they had the faith to come out? Did Christ have the power to allow them to do that? Sure, He had the power, but He didn't He didn't display that power. Now, that may or may not speak to their lack of faith, but that doesn't say that just because God doesn't act in a situation doesn't mean He doesn't have the power, right? And that's my point, is that sometimes God withholds His power, withholds His response from us because we don't believe. And I wonder how many times our lack of faith contributes to our lack of blessing. And think of blessing in the best biblical term. Okay, not just, you know, my Lamborghini's not in my front driveway. Okay. But blessing in the best biblical term. I wonder how much our lack of faith contributes to that. God could could do no more miracles here because of our lack of faith. I think there's a biblical correlation between faith and blessing as long as we understand blessing within the parameters of God's will. And the reason I, I, I can speak so confidently about this correlation is because of James 4. James 4 says you don't have because you don't ask. And other times you don't have because you ask with wrong motives so that you can consume it upon your lust. And then in James 1 that I'm going to point out here at the end, you don't have because you don't pray believingly. You pray as a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. You don't trust that God really either cares or has the power to respond. And so God lovingly withholds His blessing from us until we get to a place where we actually believe Him. Instead of just kind of going through the motions, God, when are you going to do this? God, please do this. And we really don't believe that He can or wants to. I think God lovingly withholds blessing from us because of our lack of faith many times. Now, God is gracious. And, and other times, He just 
just pours out abundant grace on us, right? Undeserved favor, even though our faith is weak, our faith is small. But I think our our lack of faith has much to do with with our lack of blessing. So I think that's part of the application, right? We part of the application of this psalm that is that that as God delivers us, it actually galvanizes our faith. That, that's what we should do. We should reflect on what God's done. It should galvanize our faith to trust Him more and then rely on Him more. But I think the main point here in the text is that that God does deliver us, and when it does, it should result in praise to Him and further confidence in His ability. And so, number two, principle number two, and I think this is, speaks more to the center of what God wants us to know from this psalm. Watching God deliver is the seed for greater trust. Watching God deliver is the seed for greater trust. I think faithlessness can have a snowball effect. Do you know what I mean by that? We start to doubt God, doubt His promises. Small doubts turn into bigger doubts, which turn into monumental doubts. Or we could say it this way, self-reliance, right? lack of trust in God, doubting God. Self-reliance breeds greater self-reliance. But I think the converse is also true. Just as our faith, faithlessness can snowball and get out of control if we don't get a hold of it and, and, and start to repent of it and turn to God, so I think faithfulness or faith-filled living also has a snowball effect. That is, that that if we start to see, we start start to take little expressions of our faith. God, I trust you in this, and we see Him work. You know what happens? Then we're not so afraid to trust Him next time. And we say, God, I trust you in this, and I'm going to leave this to you. And, and I want to see you act. I know you love me. I know you want to respond. I know you want to bless like a good father. I think our faith is a lot like a muscle. It's a gift from God that's been given to us, but we need to work it out, don't we? We need to put our faith to good use. We need to put our confidence in God and watch Him respond. And, it, and I think it does create a kind of snowball effect that, that muscle builds on top of muscle. Maybe that's not biologically or technically correct, but, but, but the idea is you don't just start out with a little skinny, tiny frame and turn into this big, massive, bulging muscle type of guy, right? you got to build on it. And I think the same thing is true with faith. We don't just all of a sudden one day wake up with just hundreds and thousands of doubts about God, and the next day we wake up with great faith. It doesn't work that way. Because we've allowed our muscle of faith to atrophy, it's going to take some time to work back up to where we need to be, where God expects us to be. And I think we just need to take the first step. There's a thousand steps to get to the fitness in our faith that we need to have. Okay, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. There are a thousand steps that I need to get to, but it starts with step number one. What do I need to trust in God today? What am I doubting God in today? That I need to go to His Word, trust in His promise, and believe Him to be true and capable of responding. And you know, God is amazing. 
in knowing exactly how to prompt us to get that muscle working. Sometimes he does it through teaching. Like maybe he's doing tonight for you. Sometimes he he does it through the reading of his word. You know, we, we watch how God responded to people who had faith in the Bible, like here in Psalm 21. And we say, yes, that's my same God. He's going to do that for me. He's going to respond for me. But I think another way that God lovingly and graciously wakes us up to our need to get back to the weights, so to speak, is that He does it through trials. That He, he, he lovingly brings about a trial in our life so that we will remove all the props that we're holding on to because we don't feel we can trust the, the sure ground upon which we stand, which is God Himself. And God's just taking away all those crutches that we're holding on to. You know, we got things tied up over here and all these boxes that we're holding on to and God just one at a time, boom, gone, snip. The next thing we know, what do we have left to stand on? What, what left do we have to hold on to? And that's often what trials do for us, isn't it? It, it? it releases our grip from everything that we think we need to stand firm so that the only thing that we can cling to is God. And in that way, trials are some of the best things for us because they wake us up to the need to start putting that faith muscle to work. Maybe it comes in the form of losing something that we love. Possession, money, health, job, family member. Other times those trials come in the form of unrealized dreams. You know, where we're just waiting and waiting and waiting to get that thing that we think is most satisfying and it never comes. And what is God doing all along the way? when we have those times of loss or unrealized dreams, isn't He reminding us that we need Him more and more? And isn't it that at those times, when we feel like there's nothing else to hold on to, that God is most near? It's when we call on Him for deliverance in times of loss. And you know, when God comes to our aid during those dark times, when those times when we feel like we're all alone, when God comes to our aid and and shows Himself with great power and responds to our needs, do you know what that does for us? It, It puts a seed in the ground for greater faith. So that when we think back on that time when I was low, God came to my rescue. I had nowhere to turn, so I trusted in God. And I know that my God can be trusted. And this trial that's coming ahead, it may be bigger, it may be smaller, but I know I can trust my God. And then at those times, we have no problem turning to Him for dependence because we've, been, we've learned what Israel has learned. We trusted Him. He responded with deliverance. And so we trust Him more. Let me just encourage you to think right now where God might be teaching you greater faith. 
hopefully you're learning it from the study of Psalm 21, but how about in some areas of your life where you're experiencing loss or an unrealized dream? Have you found God to be faithful despite that loss? Have you found God to be faithful despite not getting that thing which you think will satisfy? Have you found yourself being compelled to depend on God more and more? What specifically is God doing to teach you to have greater confidence in Him? Let me just conclude by reading from James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance produce its perfect result so that it may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man cannot receive cannot expect to receive anything from the Lord because he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, God is expecting for us to, to, to remove all the props, or sometimes He does it for us, so that we depend on Him. And, and what God wants, the kind of people that God loves to come to their aid, are those who are willing to trust Him. Even when there's a long delay, you know, sometimes these unrealized dreams are actually God's promises. Like with Abraham. I'm going to give you a son. When did that come? You know, as soon as Abraham had the strongest of his faith, maybe God waited till then, but it was 25 years, wasn't it? And then after that, God says, you need to kill your son now. You need to sacrifice him for me. And I think for Abraham, he was so confident that God would provide blessing through this son and that he had seen God work before and responded with blessing because of his dependence or through his dependence that when God said, hey, sacrifice your son, David or, or Abraham could do that because he knew that God was faithful. In other words, his deliverance that he had seen from God before actually galvanized his trust to do some probably the greatest act of his faith was expressed there in offering up his son. Sometimes we don't get what we ask for because we don't really trust God. And God lovingly and graciously works with us to help us to see that, hey, he is worthy to be trusted. And when he delivers, we ought to use those times and even record those times so that they are... um, symbols, memorials of our praise and that they also serve for us when we get into those dark times uh, in the future that we are reminded of what God has done back then. I mean, Israel often did this. They would set up stones as reminders. And what was the purpose of that? Remember at the Jordan River and following the conquest? Right, it was so that when the children come by and say, what is this, what is this doing here? Why, why do you have this pile of rocks? so they could remind him how God had been faithful. And I think it was partially for the people as well that they needed to be reminded. And I think we need to, to keep regular reminders as well. Any thoughts on Psalm 21?
Questions? Sandra. Uh, Exodus fourteen fourteen. Yeah, right before the right before the Red Sea experience there. All right, any, anyone need a prayer sheet tonight? All right, I've been um, mentioning that there are some um, meetings over at First of Sterling Heights starting on Monday, and they go through Thursday. Uh, the Gulkin Evangelistic Team will be there. Now, most of these meetings are uh, primarily not going to be evangelistic. One of them is the Tuesday night one, and there's a card in the back. Just grab one on your way out. Um, you're not obligated to go to all of them. In fact, I'd encourage you not to come to go to theirs on Wednesday because we have a service here. Um, but Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday um, be a great time to hear God's Word preached. Tuesday they have a concert, an Irish music concert, and a, a dinner prior to that. So there are details for that on this card. The, the cost of the dinner is $5 per person. If you want to go to the dinner, I do need to know, um, or you can contact the church directly. But if you if you intend to go to the dinner on Tuesday, um, just let me know so I can give them a number so they can be preparing for that. There's also teen activities. Um, a couple of us, might, maybe just me. Um, uh, ladies' brunch on Thursday. So lots lots of uh, good stuff going on, and and um, so if that would be an encouragement to you something that, that you could benefit from, I would encourage you to go. By no means are you obligated to go to all of them or, or even one of them, but but it is First of the Sterling Heights wanted us to be invited and uh, have an opportunity to just come and relax, hear God's Word preached, and, and be encouraged by it. So so grab one of those on, on your way out. That's this Monday through Thursday. All right. Uh, 